Good morning, everybody, and uh, you're very welcome to the, the annual uh, IP in-house uh, masterclass. Uh, for those that don't know me, I'm Jared Kelly, and I head up the IP team here at Mason, Hayes and & Curran, and myself and my partner, Brian McElligot, will be uh, discussing uh, some IP issues this morning. Uh, and I'm going to do the sort of usual uh, summary of cases under the various IP rights uh, and there's a sort of hopefully a takeaway for certain people uh, as regards how IP has developed over the last year or so. And then Brian is going to deal with an interesting issue. And I'm going to start uh, introducing Brian's talk, I suppose, by asking, does anyone recognize what this is? This is a monkey selfie. And going back to 2011, a British photographer left a camera in Indonesia hoping that a monkey would figure out how to use it. Uh, the monkey did and took many selfies. This was one. Uh, and the photographer wanted to exploit the image through licensing and to generate an income from it. And the courts had to grapple with, well, who owns the copyright to a monkey selfie? Is it the photographer, the person who owns the uh, camera, or is it, in fact, the monkey? Or could it be the monkey? And the court held that it cannot be uh, owned as a copyright work because it wasn't taken by a human. And so what Brian's going to look at is how IP and artificial intelligence, so machine-generated works, uh, will uh, be dealt with in the area of copyright. Our masterclass sort of coincides with World IP Day. And so WIPO in Geneva, which is the World International Property Organization, uh, last week uh, published a sort of guide as to how IP uh, relates to sports. And that was the theme it had. And I'm just going to give some examples of how IP and sports do interact uh, throughout the talk. But looking at the areas of trademarks, copyright designs, and patents, if we start with trademarks, I think everyone knows what they are. They're the distinctive sign which can distinguish the goods and services from one company to another. How it interacts with sports is it enables sponsorship, it enables merchandising, and teams and players, for example, David Beckham has a European Union trademark for his name, David Beckham, and that facilitates him licensing uh, his name to go with various different products. If we look at developments in Ireland over the last year or so, I have spoken before about this KitKat case. Uh, the chocolate bar has formed part of the chocolate wars between Nestle and Cadbury, where Cadbury have always objected to Nestle trying to get a trademark for the shape of their product. And at the same time, Nestle have tried to stop Cadbury registering the color purple for their chocolate bars. So here, the question for the Court of Justice was whether in trying to show an acquired distinctness through use, because the office was not satisfied that a chocolate bar like this is inherently distinctive, when somebody looks at it, they don't think immediately of Nestle. So Nestle have to prove that through use, uh, it has acquired a badge of origin status. And the question is, do you have to prove that throughout the entire EU, if it's an EU trademark? The answer to which is yes. It's not just a significant part. But why this case is particularly interesting is it talks about the burden or the proportionality of what you must show uh, in making an acquired distinctiveness true use case. And here it was held by the Court of Justice, for example, that if certain countries are grouped together through distribution channels, let's say Ireland and the UK, for example, 
you can bundle them together in putting forward your evidence of use without having to re repeat yourself for all 28, soon to be 27, member states. Another case that came up in the Netherlands, for example, I'm sure we're all familiar with those uh, red sole shoes from Louboutin, but effectively there was an infringement action and the defendant in that infringement action argued that the trademark that Louboutin has in the colour red on the sole is invalid because it's considered to be, in their eyes, a shape and therefore it gives substantial value to the goods and therefore it's not actually allowed to be a trademark. So the Court of Justice looked at this and held that a shape actually means a shape, it does not mean a colour. And for that reason, uh, the defence or the attempt to invalidate the trademark did not succeed. Another example here is where Pair Technologies decided to register an EUTM or apply to register an EUTM for computer software and computers. And obviously, a very famous uh, fruit mimicked uh, company, Apple, decided to oppose that application. And here, the general court had to look at whether the fact that there is a visual similarity between the Pear device and the Apple device and whether they're considered to be conceptually similar, for example. So to show uh, that there's an infringement, you have to show that there's a visual, aural or conceptual similarity. So here, what was interesting is that the court started to look at whether the two fruits, apples and pears, are conceptually similar. And it decided, when you look at it visually, for example, it held that they're not that actual similar. The only similarity you could see is the fact that there's the use of black, which is probably a bit strict. But conceptually, it held that whilst the fruit uh, may sort of grow the same way and to a degree look the same, these two marks were not conceptually similar. Uh, particularly because there was a bite taken out of this and in some cultures proverbs talk about pears and apples differently so that's how the court was looking at that so so far uh, apple have been unsuccessful in trying to prevent pear technologies and their uh, device mark looking at an irish case this is quite interesting it's a court of appeal decision from january and this is where go away free range eggs which I think you'll appreciate is a very descriptive term uh, of free-range eggs coming from Galway. Not something you could probably trademark because it's descriptive, but it is possible through use to obviously show an acquired distinctiveness through use, as I mentioned with the Kit Kat chocolate bar case, or to build up a sufficient goodwill for passing off purposes. In other words, to show that your name, Galway free-range eggs, has got a secondary meaning. When people hear it, they think of your company not free-range eggs necessarily coming from Galway by any particular uh, business. So here, a company set up O'Brien's of Galway free-range eggs. And the company that was selling Galway free-range eggs took a passing-off action to prevent the sale of that product. What's interesting, obviously, is that the Court of Appeal uh, held that there was a sufficient goodwill in the name Galway Free-Range Eggs for a passing-off action to take place. Then there was the issue of, well, are consumers confused to an extent? You have to have uh, misrepresentation for a passing-off purpose. And what's interesting about this case is that it looked at the issue of survey evidence, where um, in the past, courts have been quite reluctant to allow companies to come to court with surveys of a 
poll of consumers that they've asked questions because people get paranoid that the questions they asked were deliberately posed the way they were posed to get the answers they wanted, etc. But the Court of Appeal was comfortable with the use of survey evidence. But I said, what the most um, significant point here is that only 29% of those polled uh, actually thought there could be confusion between Galway Free Range Eggs and O'Brien's of Galway Free Range Eggs. But the Court of Appeal held that that significant minority was enough for a passing off action to succeed. Another issue that came up in the case was the fact that under EU labelling laws, you actually have to call free range eggs, free range eggs on the box. So the defendant here argued that, well, because we have to use free range eggs on the box, we're entitled to have it in the name, but the Court of Appeal disagreed with that. It doesn't have to be in the name, it just has to be on the box. So this case here succeeded in preventing O'Brien's of Govey free range eggs selling under that particular name. Then in the area of copyright, we'll see going with the sporting theme that White Bow are looking at, this is generally in the area of broadcasting rights and the revenues that that can uh, generate. And you'll see companies like Sky, for example, enforcing their rights to broadcast the Premier League matches in pubs when company, uh, pubs aren't paying the, the proper uh, licensing revenue. And that's why you see the, the white pint glass uh, icon on the screen, for example. So looking at some cases, this one's quite interesting. Um, it's to do with a photograph of the city of Cordoba. Now, what we know from Court of Justice case law is, for example, hyperlinking or linking to content on a website is not copyright infringement. So if I have a website and I am freely uh, making available photographs, anyone can link to that and it's not going to be copyright infringement. What happened here was there was a website with a photograph, this exact photograph, and a student decided to copy the photograph from the web into their assignment for a Spanish class. And once that was done, the student and school decided to put it up onto the school's website. The photographer took issue with that and decided to make a case or take a claim. And the question for the Court of Justice was whether are you entitled to use or reuse photographs that are freely available on the internet. So they're obviously put up on the original website with the photographer's permission. There may be a license behind it, there may be a fee behind it, we don't know. But are you entitled to then go and take that image and use it on your own website? And the answer from the Court of Justice is no. That is considered to be a new act of communication to the public uh, because otherwise it would really undermine the photographer's ability to exploit their work uh, and to prevent it being used in ways that they're not happy with. Another case uh, from the Court of Justice is in the area of file sharing that you'll see copyright comes up quite a bit where uh, works, particularly music, is used by uh, consumers, I suppose, and, and shared freely. Uh, and that's obviously a, a detriment to the, the music industry. Here we had an audio book uh, which was uh, subject to file sharing. And the German law that sort of applied here was if you own the internet connection, you're presumed to be liable uh, unless you can show somebody else was able to use your connection at the time. So in this particular case, the relevant German national decided to argue that his parents had uh, access to the internet connection. But because of the right to privacy and the way the law was set up, he didn't have to actually incriminate his parents necessarily or go any further. He just said, my parents can access it and tried to rely on that as a defense to copyright infringement. And the Court of Justice looked at that and held 
balancing up the rights of copyright on the one hand as a property right and the defence, I suppose, of trying to rely on private life. Uh, copyright won that uh, balancing exercise and that relevant national law wasn't going to be uh, held sort of compatible with EU law. Here's an example of trying to use IP to protect something I suppose quite novel, and that is taste of a product. We have had cases at a national level in the EU where smells of perfumes, for example, have succeeded in being protected by copyright. Here, a Dutch company who had a spreadable dip, which uh, was sort of a cream cheese and herb flavor, decided to argue that it was copyright protected. In other words, the impression that it gave uh, to the consumer that consumes the food product through the senses in the mouth, etc., was something that copyright could protect. Now, obviously, we know copyright protects things like photographs and books. It's never been suggested it would protect something like taste. And obviously, the benefit here is that, and the example here is that if a competing product tries to imitate that taste, that would potentially be copyright infringement. So here the Court of Justice looked at this and held that taste is not objective, it's not sufficiently uh, precise, and therefore cannot be the subject of copyright protection. How I would taste something and how somebody else would taste something would be different, it's very subjective. And for that reason, taste could not be protected by copyright. Then looking at designs, which is, I suppose, often the, the weaker cousin of uh, IP rights for a variety of reasons. But again, looking at the sporting angle, you can have, and this is Puma's uh, self-tying shoe, or runner, uh, they, something you can apply for designs. And it's the aesthetic appearance of that product that gets protected for, uh, by design rights. The problem with design rights is they're very easy to obtain. If you file one at the EU office, you get it within about 48 hours because they don't check prior existing rights or what's on the register to prevent it. So it's the appearance of the product. It's not going to be the fact that it's a self-tying runner. That would be something like patents. Here's a case that's come up in the UK and it really confirms how difficult it is to succeed in a design right infringement case. So this case isn't a million miles away from the sport, I suppose, uh, side of things, but this was for a wrist heart rate monitor. And this was the relevant design here. Uh, PulseOn was actually a subsidiary of Nokia, uh, and Garmin had produced something very similar to their product. But this was the registered design, and you can see the opening there. That allows the photo sensor to work uh, when it's put on the wrist, and there's LEDs which emit light, and the photosensor then works on how the tissue changes because of the pulsating blood flows, and it can obviously then read your heart rate. Um, so this is the design, and this is how it looks on the Pulsan product, and that's how it looks on the Garmin product. So they took a design right infringement action. And the Court of Appeal in the UK, that's where it went to, had to decide whether there was an infringement. And for those that have come to this talk before, you'll have seen I've spoken about the trunky suitcase for example, and how that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was held that the difference between floppy ears and horned ears was probably enough to prevent those ride-on suitcases being an infringement. But here they had to look at the uh, constraints around design freedom, and that's a, a relevant consideration in design law. So if you have the shoe, for example, there's a lot of things you can do to make it look different to other designs out there, but here 
because of the sort of technical aspect, you are constrained somewhat in having to have an opening uh, so that it can read the, the heart rate. And that was one of the arguments that was made by Garman in the particular case. And what the court does is it provides for lists of similarities and differences. So because the LEDs were slightly closer to the photosensor and the openings for the LEDs were um, slightly uh, smaller, that was enough of a difference to mean that design right infringement did not take place in that particular case. So there's been four quite high up court decisions by the Court of Appeal and in the Supreme Court in the UK, for example, all of which have gone against the design holder. So it makes it very difficult to uh, advise clients, I suppose, as to whether something is worth taking by way of a, a case because you really just can't tell how it might ultimately um, be decided. Finally, in respect of patents, again, looking at what WIPO was looking at, how, for example, in Stadia, there are all these sort of Wi-Fi networks and mobile apps that can be used and they can be patented to a degree. But sports equipment with sensors, just like what I was looking at on the design side, or the self-tying shoe, they could, for instance, be patented, or the materials that are used in a golf club or a tennis racket. Looking at some cases, there are three particular cases I'm going to look at. The first is a decision of the commercial court last year in a patent infringement action. And for those that are involved in patents in any way, European patents at the EPO, they get granted. Uh, they're obviously then something that can be enforced. However, once they're granted, there's a nine-month opposition period for companies to oppose the patent, notwithstanding it's actually being granted and is in effect. And those opposition proceedings uh, are quite time-consuming. They take a long time to go through, and it can be many years before that happens. If they're successfully opposed at the EPO, it means that the right, uh, the patent is, is invalid across the entire European countries in which it's designated. But what has happened a lot is you'll get an enforcement action in a national court, be it Ireland or the UK, while an opposition is ongoing. And it begs the question as to whether there should be two cases where you're potentially looking at the validity of the same patent at a national court and at the EPO. So here, in revocation proceedings, the patentee argued to the commercial court here that because of those EPO proceedings, uh, the high court or commercial court action here should be stayed. There's been a number of cases around that where there's a presumption sort of in favour of staying. However, the UK courts have sort of said, well, if, because you want commercial certainty for parties, uh, we might actually look at the, uh, the patent validity and let the case go on. Irish courts are probably a bit more reluctant to do that because they don't have the same specialism on the bench. But here, instead of staying the proceedings, what happened was the public interest in the sort of supply of this particular drug meant that the court, because of its limited resources, would not hear the trial of the action, but the parties were still expected to do absolutely everything in preparation to trial, be it exchange pleadings, uh, go through the discovery phase, do witness statements and submissions, and have everything ready to go, except the trial wouldn't happen. So in fairness, whilst the patentee there may have thought they were going to save some money by having a stay, uh, that probably didn't turn out to be the particular case. Another uh, example from Ireland is uh, in the area of preliminary injunctions. <clears throat> and we've looked at this in previous talks about how it's difficult to obtain a preliminary injunction. In other words, to try and stop a product being sold pending the trial, because it might take a year for the trial to come on. Here, Clonmel Healthcare released uh, a drug at a 92% discount. You can appreciate that the 
patent holder there was extremely alarmed. They went straight into the uh, High Court and got an ex parte interim injunction on a Friday before Mr. Justice McGovern. And he gave short service for the hearing to be on notice a couple of days later, where the injunction was lifted based on the case law around adequacy of damages. At the moment, we have uh, some cases now which are pretty much saying that if you can calculate what the damages might be uh, as a, a party in potentially infringing and you're able to pay it, that means that you should be entitled to fringe potentially uh, until the trial. The Supreme Court yesterday uh, has heard an appeal in this particular case because the Court of Appeal agreed there shouldn't be an injunction by a two to one majority, which uh, is Hogan dissenting. And the Supreme Court heard an appeal yesterday. And what's interesting about it is the patent has actually expired. So it's actually a moot point between the parties. But the Supreme Court, in deciding that leave to appeal and the hearing should go on, is sufficiently motivated enough to look at this and how adequacy damages works to see whether we are, in Ireland, probably going too far uh, in allowing potential infringements to uh, happen pending trials. So it's be interesting to see how that decision uh, interacts with the relevant test. Finally, uh, Warner Lambert and Generics is a UK Supreme Court decision. Uh, again, you, you find a lot of uh, drug cases are the ones that really go the distance. Uh, and here it looked at the issue of insufficiency. Um, it's probably not interesting to everyone in the audience, but effectively it's whether a patent is uh, disclosing enough information to enable a skilled addressee to be able to work the invention, to understand how the invention worked. And that comes up a lot in pharmaceutical patents because you don't have enough data potentially in the patent to have the skilled address you understand whether it works in treating the relevant uh, disease or whatever the case may be. Here, uh, this drug works in respect of inflammatory pain and neuropathic pain. And the relevant data in the patent had to do with mouse models and the data was for inflammatory pain only. And the Supreme Court here held that that was just inflammatory pain. It wasn't pain generally. And therefore, the claims in the patent that related to inflammatory pain were OK. But any other different type of pain, it was invalid. Uh, so there are some good guidance there on insufficiency, for example. And we'll see how the courts look at that here. Thanks. So now Brian was going to talk about AI. Great, thanks very much, Jerry. It's not bad for someone who's in the midst of a trial at the moment. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for coming along. Uh, as Jerry said, I'm going to be talking to you about some developments in artificial intelligence, but with a particular focus on intellectual property and, as Jerry alluded to, copyright in particular. Um, what I'd like you to take away with you today are a couple of points would be how AI and some very major legal principles are going to converge and what the outcome will be there and some very common misconceptions in the area. Um, and also, when looking at maybe insourcing or investing in AI technology in your own businesses, you might take a slightly different view or a more nuanced view of how you do diligence in this area because it's not the exact same as it is. It's not massively different, but there are some differences. Now, before I get on to this, I want to tell you a little bit about um, a conference I was at recently and uh, a couple of anecdotes were, that were told that very, very well, I suppose, express um, the area of AI, how it's progressing and how we appreciate it. A very eminent Irish AI practitioner 
um, was telling us about a conference he was at and later on that evening where he was in a bar chatting to a farmer about AI and it said it transpired about 10 minutes into that conversation that each of them was talking about two very, very different things. Um, also, he was telling us about his views on, now this guy's a, a real expert in the area, he was telling us his views on adoption and you know how quick the machines are going to take over. And he kind of put the brakes on it, to excuse the pun. Um, he said, uh, think about the adoption of automatic transmission vehicles in Ireland and how many of us drive a stick shift and how many of us drive an automatic uh, car. Now think about handing over control by well, an Irish person, handing over control to the car completely. And you get a sense for the progression of AI and with his analogy about the farmer, the understanding of AI. Now, AI is absolutely all around us. We all have digital, well, a lot of us have digital assistants. A lot of us use Siri or the version on an Android phone. AI is helping us uh, in our daily lives and it's gently, gently encroaching. And the sense is, is that that is the way or the model that will continue for quite some time rather than a massive jump towards kind of what's, what's referred to as general AI. Narrow AI is what you have where machines are doing repetitive tasks but doing them very, very well. General AI is when something is acting like a human and the estimates for that are very, very long. What we have here is a picture of a Rembrandt which was created by a machine, and we're going to look at a video clip now to see how this was done. Now, what I would like you to keep your eye out for in this is not necessarily the output, it's beautiful, but have a think about, as you're going through, have a think about how this is being created and the level of autonomy of the machine. Picture, it's 3D. You can see the kind of you can see. 
to the process, and that's what makes the painting come alive. But life map is essential to make the painting a painting. We incorporate the height map into the painting. We print it on a 3D printer that uses a special paint-based UV ink. We printed many layers, one on top of the other, which resulted in the height and texture of the final painting. Sometimes a magical moment to see a painting for the first time, even if it's computer generated, for me it is something special. I would have believed if I was sold in a museum that it would have been a, a real Rembrandt, uh, just one I hadn't seen before. It would be interesting to see Rembrandt looking at it. He would be happy that there are people trying to understand him, trying to create something out of that. So I think he would be happy. The next Rembrandt makes you think about where innovation can take us. What's next? So, let's go back to the slides. Uh, you can see there an example of neural networks or what's referred to as narrow AI. This AI has the ability to be fed some instructions and to then be asked for the answer. And then the machine itself runs a whole bunch of iterations over and over and over until it gets the answer that you're looking for. So its first version will be dreadful, but slowly, but slowly, but surely, it will get into a scenario where it creates something like this amazing, to my eye, absolutely stunning. Um, I'm no expert at all. So if you have a machine that arguably did create the output, now it was fed inputs, but it did actually go off and run a lot of iterations itself is this machine something that's capable of owning copyright? And to go back to Jerry's point about the monkey selfie, do we have something other than a human at work here that is creating uh, output or a work as referred to under copyright legislation? We have to look to copyright legislation, which is very similar across the world. And as Jerry also said, uh, copyright, uh, certainly under Irish and EU legislation, can only be owned by a person or individuals or group in, of individuals, not even a legal entity. A legal entity can hold copyright once it's been assigned to us by the author, but not the original creator is the author itself. And the author can only be a person, and under the Interpretation Act, a person is pretty much a person. It cannot be a machine. This then is where, kind of, I suppose, legal principles and AI start to rub up against each other, and where our own natural inclination to, I suppose, look at an output and look at who created it and start to make, start raise questions about the who or the what or the it. There are three common misconceptions about current levels of AI anyway, and that is the iRobot misconception, which is our tendency um, or our assumption that the it is a thing or it's a person and to anthropomorphize it. The agency misconception is one around where we see it doing something, and uh, driverless cars is a good example here, where if it does something, it crashes and causes a loss, so we, we try to import some sort of uh, liability or obligations onto it. And finally, there's the entity notion. Is it something? Um, can it be something? This whole argument 
is then playing out at the EU level where the Parliament a couple of years ago created what it called the EU Parliament Civil Law Rules on Robots. It's more a, a discussion paper than anything else really about what we need to be thinking about. Towards the end of the recitals, uh, the Parliament made a recommendation to the Commission which said something along the lines of, in the future, when you are looking at this area, do please have some, um, some cognizance of the following. Creating a specific legal status for robots in the long run so that at least the most sophisticated autonomous robots could be established as having the status of electronic persons responsible for making good any damage they may cause and possibly applying electronic personality to cases where robots make autonomous decisions or otherwise interact with third parties indirectly. What you're seeing there is the, the, mis, the misstep into it's doing something and that something could do damage, therefore we need to be start thinking about uh, some sort of a, an electronic personality. So that was put out there and quite quickly this came back to them, an open letter um, from a group of experts in the area from legal backgrounds, industry backgrounds listed up there, um, medical experts, legal experts, ethics experts, philosophers, very high-ranking people and that's 285 signatories and counting and it delivered the ultimate slapdown to them which basically said it's nonsense, move away, don't even be thinking about going in this direction. From an ethical and legal perspective, creating a legal personality for a robot is inappropriate, whatever the legal status model. Um, and you can look into that a little bit more deeply. And it's to consider what uh, the current uh, kind of nomenclature we have for a person. It's either an individual or a legal entity. If it's a person, a person has legal rights, fundamental rights. Would you give those fundamental rights to a machine that is basically data fed into an algorithm backed up by software? So that machine would have the right to vote. Uh, you know, all of these other rights we associate with ourselves as individuals. And that's the analysis behind that. And you know, quickly, you kinda, your logical self removes yourself from that urge to anthropomorphize the machine. If it's to be a legal entity, we all know that a legal entity is set up in accordance with um, rules and regulations and it's created by people who back it and your directors and secretaries of the company. Um, again, that doesn't in any way fit with the model of a machine. So it doesn't fit with current models. It cannot really be put into any of those holes to the extent that down the line we come up with some version of this. Well, then maybe. But the current thinking is that we are dealing with such narrow levels of AI that it's, it's just a nonsense. So, how do we deal with it? We have a Rembrandt painting which is created by a whole bunch of people. Clearly, the machine did something. It had its own uh, creation element to it, although it was given some instructions, but it wasn't given all of the instructions. Irish legislation and UK legislation alone in the EU actually have a fix for this. And it is that they allowed in the legislation for computer-generated works which are works that are generated by a computer in circumstances where the author of the work is not an individual. And then if you go into section 21, you'll find out who the author of this particular work is, and it's the person whom the arrangements necessary for the creation of the work are undertaken. Uh, so it's apparent that we have a solution. We have no real strong case law to test it. We have no case law, we have the monkey selfie, but we have no case law around a machine doing something or no significant case law where a machine has done something and there has been an allegation that you know 
it isn't owned by a particular person, it's not owned by a particular group of persons, it hasn't been tested yet, and you can see that when the time does come for it to be tested, that things like uh, the arrangements necessary for the creation of the work will be heavily analysed, and God knows what way that will go. But to all intents and purposes, we have some fix. So where are we going, or where are we kind of currently at and going to next steps? In our daily lives, some very interesting things happening. Um, in the west of Ireland, there's a company called Phileo, and it uh, is an autonomous vehicle business which uh, is interested in the software side of it, and it recently got a very substantial investment of about 40 million. The 40 million investment was there to, for it to develop its technology um, rather aptly for driverless cars in very poor weather conditions. So it's great that they're based in Galway. Um, we've done work with a company called Advanced Media Data Technologies, which are very good on the structuring of data and natural language processing, um, and which also has some very good outputs in the area of border security and control. Everybody, I'm sure, is aware of some form of not of um, IBM Watson. It has use across many platforms and many sectors, and some of the more interesting ones, I presume, around medical diagnostics. Um, actually, it's interesting to note that the vast majority of the investments in AI all go into either medical area or into the fintech area, where all the, the banks are investing heavily. With IBM Watson, you're at the point now where they are scanning x-rays and MRIs, the machines, and coming back with better diagnostics than the vast majority of the doctors who are looking at it. Now, at the very end, the doctors will always run their eye over the results as well, but the results by the machine are better and con more consistent. Um, in the area of banking, there's a lot around process automation, credit diagnostics, risk management, and also fraud detection. You'll see um, a lot of that creeping into the banking business and um, a lot of banking, large banks um, investing in incubators in this area. On the legal tech side, we ourselves here use something called HiQ and we're actually looking at uh, rolling out a, a minor application of it uh, for one of our large trademark portfolio clients at the moment, which will deliver some efficiencies for them. Allen and Overy in the UK have their own Fuse incubator where they bring technology companies into their business and they incubate them for the purposes of getting legal tech and they claim that they have this amazing deal platform coming out that they use. Kira is used for contract reviews um, apparently very effective, I haven't seen it myself, but they, sorry, this piece of software can scan contracts for the purposes of diligence. And on the other end, you have a Thomson's Reuters product, which um, does the opposite, which is the contract drafting. Let's look then at um, the EU approach to the area. So generally, what's happening in the area of AI when it comes to regulation? The EU has a very interesting approach to it. It is very, very different to what's happening in China, which is considered the Wild West, and the US, which is less so. But um, the, you have the kind of pitch battle running at the moment where China and the US uh, would be seen as the lead innovators in the world. Um, and the EU is slow to catch up, and the usual reasons given are overregulation and lack of investment. The EU approach, though, I think that, that there's something to it. It's, it's an element of a long game being played here. The approach is to come from a principles-based platform and to move from there. And if you like, it's almost a mirror image of the EU itself, based on four freedoms 
um, and then building regulation from there. Well, the EU approach to this is to try to build ethics guidelines around what is trustworthy AI and then from there to move into the realm of regulation. What regulation looks like, we don't know just yet. It may be sector-based, it may be a mixture of sector-based uh, combined with regulators for those sectors rather than just uh, reams and reams of legislation. The key sort of themes they're exploring are trust, AI by design, anyone who's done anything with GDPR, will, their, their ears will be ringing for that one. Um, everything that is coming out uh, product-wise, they want it to be explainable. So we all understand when we give information to the machine how it gets the answer. It needs to be accountable, it needs to take account of fundamental rights, and trust is a key and not a luxury. The approach has been, late or uh, April last year, they pulled together what they called high-level expert group. So there's 52 experts from across the EU and Ireland's own um, and a resident uh, AI expert, Professor Barry O'Sullivan from UCC is on that group and quite high ranking on it. And they were tasked with coming up with ethics. And they produced a report in December, which ran to about 40 pages, about what ethics will look like in this area. And as a lawyer reading it, you're tempted to kind of dismiss it because it's all fluffy ethics. And there's only about two paragraphs in the whole thing that starts talking about law. But again, it's, it's a principles-based model which needs to grow from here and is going quite quickly because since December up until early, late March they finalized those principles now they're finalized and they're quickly moving into a pilot stage where companies are going to be invited to come in and work off these principles producing products and the outputs of that are supposed to be done by Q3 around the end of Q3 so it is picking up pace after that you'll probably see the regulation side picking up so then you're saying to yourself well that's all well and great uh, what if you're some basing something on ethics, you know, what's the output? And the output is, is that they want trustworthy AI. And when they came to this in their report, they said that trustworthy AI looks like that. Under those headings, um, a lot of it is around the consumer. It's all built around making sure the consumer can have trust in the AI. It's very much kind of a, a work in progress um, and, you know, kind of, Keep, keep your eyes peeled towards the end of this year when the next uh, inputs will be coming. In your own business, investing in or licensing in tech in this area is, is not a massive step change in what you would be doing if you were sourcing some sort of SaaS or platform. The, the kind of kinks or the nuances to be looking out for though is, think back to our Rembrandt painting. The Rembrandt painting had to be fed loads of information and data in order for it to calculate what it was being asked to do. So it said, I need, you know, give me 300 Rembrandts. And then they said, well, the eye needs to look like this, the nodes needs to look like this, and then it gives out the answer. Think about that in the context of fraud detection, credit risk, and all that. And you will have machines that have been trained, is the, the kind of the um, term they give to it. The machines are trained on data, lots and lots of data. And when you think data, as all good lawyers do, you're probably going to be thinking about privacy and personal data. There'll be elements of data in there and elements of personal data. So if you were to invest in, let's say, a startup, or look at a startup, or license technology from a startup, you know, sometimes startups have to do things that uh, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't tremendously lawful, and they go out and they maybe make a misstep in how they procure data. So you have to be very certain that the machine that was trained on the particular data the data that was fed into it in the first instance was done so in a lawful manner, lawful processing grounds, etc., and that the IP licenses behind it are all there to back it up. 
And it doesn't stop there. You've got to think about the output. Well, am I allowed to use the output for the particular means and results I want to use it for? So I'm not trying to say that you know, it's a massive change to look into AI. It's not really. At the end of the day, it's still software and data. But your priorities need to be a little bit more nuanced on any sort of diligence when you're looking at that. Of course, the, the easy way to do a lot of this is, of course, get everything into a contract and make sure that to the extent that something is creating output, who owns the output? You just you skip all that argument we had about uh, copyright ownership and authors. Just you, you set it out in the contract, who owns the outputs? And you get around about that. But you do need to be thinking about these particular things. Um, anyone has an interest in the area? There's some very good books, lots and lots of them. Uh, a very good introduction and a very easy introduction to the area is one by uh, a mathematician called Hannah Fry. It's very readable and it tackles the subject um, on a chapter by chapter basis by saying, you know, let's do it, look at it from the medical side, the legal side, and it goes through it in that way. Uh, a little bit more um, detailed is a book by Jacob Turner about robot rules. He's a barrister in the UK and it's a, a very, very good analysis of the area. Well, thank you very much.